0: We do, Lord, praise your name and we praise you that you are sovereign, that we can put our trust and confidence in you, not just momentarily, not when we feel it, but every moment of every day we can trust in your sovereign purposes. There's much in this world that confuses us that we find challenging and difficult. We come before you humbly seeking your grace. And Lord, we realize that we need Your Word, and we come before it today with a desire to know it better, to be challenged by it, encouraged by it, and I ask that by Your Spirit, You would teach us Your truth and direct us to understand our world and who You are and our relationship with You. We thank You for this time together to sing the songs of the redeemed life, to consider Your Word. We pray for those who know you not as Savior that you draw them to this light, and for those of us who do that we'd rejoice in it and grow in it. Meet with us here and work by your Spirit, we pray, through Christ. Amen. The Bible is a tale of two cities. These two cities represent two communities of people. They are distinguished by their relationship with God. This classic treatise the city of God, 4th century theologian Augustine of Hippo distilled the orientation of these communities in a memorable way. He says this, Two cities have been formed by two loves. The earthly city by the love of self, even to the contempt of God. The heavenly city by the love of God, even to the contempt of self. The former, in a word, glories in itself. The latter in the Lord. One lifts up its head in its own glory. The other says to its God, You are my glory and the lifter up of my head. These two cities are locked in mortal combat with one another. Not a physical combat on the one side, but certainly a combat, a struggle This conflict always rages below the surface of human awareness, but periodically it erupts into open hostility. The eternal city of God, which Abraham sought by faith, will one day triumph. We are given this assurance in Scripture. The earthly city, which now rules with colossal arrogance against God and His people, will one day perish. Psalm 2 and the arrogant approach to God there will be silenced. So the big question really for us, these are ideas that we perhaps know, maybe it's new for you, but the, really the big question is which city is your city? Which city is your city? Are you faithfully calibrating your life to the purposes of that city? We begin today a series of sermons that will trace this vital theme through the Bible The two cities, the city of man, the city of God, and the way in which the city as a theme plays out in the Scriptures. As we investigate the loves and the motivations of each city, this series is really then an investment in clarifying and edifying our identity as God's people in a world that rages against the Lordship of Christ and His saving grace. We begin today where we must begin, namely with the genesis of these two communities in Genesis chapter 4. It was maybe seven years ago or so that we visited this text and I think we had a guest speaker that touched on it or dealt with it maybe a year or two ago. It's a familiar passage to us, Genesis 4, but I want to look at it in this unique way today and really at what's at the heart of it. And that is this battle between and the genesis of these two communities. I would even say as we come to Genesis 4, if you fail to grasp this, if you fail to grasp the identification of these two lines of people, you will be much the poorer for it. You really will not understand some vital things about how the Bible unfolds and its message if we don't grasp this distinction here as it's laid out. We will fail to read the Bible's storyline properly and we'll certainly fail to benefit as we should if we don't capture this here in Genesis 4. Genesis 4 introduces the theme of these two cities depicted as two offsprings. There's a number of ways to talk about it. Two offsprings, two seeds is the older uh, term and more graphic term, or the two cities in fundamental conflict with one another. We bring to Genesis 4, of course, Genesis 1 and 2, and God speaks the universe into existence. He creates Adam and Eve as His image bearers and vice regents who are to exercise dominion over creation. And God walks in the sanctuary of the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. Keep that in mind. It's very important. He's walking with them there. His presence is in the Garden with them. So for all of its beauty, the ultimate splendor of the Garden is this the presence of the Lord with man. Genesis 3, the story takes a dark turn. Adam and Eve disobey the command of God and they are cursed. But there is that hopeful message in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. Notice that emphasis on offspring again or seed. He will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God promises here to reverse the curse. He will do so by a child of Eve who will come to crush Satan's head. It will be indeed a mutual death blow. Your heel will be crushed. This one's heel will be crushed upon Satan's head. This is God's promise. It's cryptic. Couldn't possibly know how it would play out and how it would look at this particular point in time in Genesis 3. But it's a message of hope. And we'll notice, as Adam and Eve relate to this message and to this promise, they keep grasping at it. They keep drawing it back into their comments. That there will be this reversing of the curse, this crushing of the head that has come to raise its head against God and His purposes. That story develops along. Two distinct offsprings. Two family groupings of people and their orientation toward God. So when we read of the offspring of the serpent, don't think of snakes. This is figurative language. The offspring of the serpent are the people that follow the ways of Satan. Then there's the offspring of the woman pointing ultimately to Messiah who will conquer Satan and his purposes to destroy people and draw away from the glory of God. So, along these family lines, these genealogies and lineage, these people and their identity, the story begins in chapter 4 with the wail of two newborns and with the worship of God. Verse 1 of chapter 4, we read of Cain's worship, worshiping God on his own terms eventually, but first his birth. Verse 1 of chapter 4, Adam and Eve, Adam knew Eve, his wife. And she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother, Abel. Despite the intense pain due to her sin, the mother of all the living blesses God for giving her offspring. And as her sons mature, Cain and Abel learn to contribute to the fledgling society. We see in verse 2 a division of labor. Abel was a keeper of the sheep and Cain was a worker of the ground at this point very agrarian just raising food that's what the uh, purpose was at this early stage but a division of labor even indeed some specialization in the work that they are providing for their children ultimately to keep the race alive verse 3 in this in the course of time Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the first of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions, God has taught the first family about how to approach him as sinners, and it deals with sacrifice. this will be necessary. so Cain, a farmer, brings produce as a sacrifice, and Abel, a shepherd, brings a lamb in verse four we read that the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. There's nothing innately evil about grain offerings. In fact, God will command Israel to offer them later under the Mosaic Code. God accepts Abel and he accepts his offering. But he accepts neither Cain nor his offering. So there's something that was wrong with Cain, and there's something that was wrong with Cain's offering, the two going hand in glove. God had apparently instructed the first family how to approach him with sacrifices. We have to assume that. Otherwise, what standard would there be for God to be disappointed with Cain? But we also see language here that tips us off this way. You see a reference here to the fat portions. That Abel offers. This just calls into mind what will come later in the Mosaic Code, and it all indicates that God had spoken to them. The description of Abel's offering synchronizes with these sacrificial laws later given, and therefore indicates that God had had this instruction with them earlier. Cain's offerings, by contrast, do not match these guidelines, and so probably did not conform to God's counsel on this particular sacrifice. There's a lot we don't know. What we do know is what God thinks. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but no regard for Cain and his offering. How does Cain respond? We know the account well. Cain was very angry and his face fell. When God looks with disfavor upon us, what is it? When God looks with disfavor upon you, how do you take it? Learn this, never forget, it's grace. Whenever He looks upon us with disfavor, it's grace. There's a day coming when God won't look with disfavor, He'll just simply judge That day will come, but now he looks with disfavor, which is in some sense an invitation to respond, to turn, to change. But rather than lift his face to seek God's help, Cain's face falls. What does that mean? His face like slid off his skeleton onto the ground? Obviously it's a figure of speech, but we know what it means. We've all seen a fallen face and we've shown a few of them from time to time. Cain's face reveals that he is pouting, His eyes grow dark with anger. Now Cain could have said here, God, I have sinned against You. Confession. He could have said, Lord, please forgive me. And he would have. He could have said, by Your grace I will offer the right sacrifice with the right attitude from now on, which is repentance, a change of heart. But Cain becomes belligerent. He becomes obstinate. He spirals downward toward even greater sin. And yet, here is the gracious God coming at him again, continuing His counsel of Cain, even though his face has fallen, even though he has become obstinate toward God. Verse 6, The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry and why has your face fallen? God's not seeking information here. He totally understands, but He is drawing him out. Verse 7, If you do well... Here's his counsel. If you do well, Cain, will you not be accepted by me? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. There is an attack from Satan here, Cain. You've got to resist it. Come to me, listen, let's talk. Why are you angry, Cain? What does Cain say? Eerily? He says nothing. An eerie silence. His anger with God becomes a seething, jealous hatred. Not just toward God, but toward his brother. And So we read then, beginning at verse 8, of Cain's murder of Abel. Verse 8, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. And the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? 1 John 3.12 helps us draw the conclusion that we probably would draw anyway, and that's that Cain killed Abel for this reason. Abel's life pleased the Lord. Now don't miss this. We have worship and we have murder. Those two go together all the time. It causes our head to spin. What do you mean? Worship and murder, this don't seem to have anything to do with one another. They, have, they are always hardwired. And it starts right here. Cain murders his brother Abel and it's in the context of worship. So rather than turning to God in repentance, Cain murders him. This is the first murder in history and it is a murder of persecution. The first murder, the first murder victim in history is a martyr for his faith in God. Abel is dead. But Cain has accomplished what? He's accomplished absolutely nothing. He must now answer to God for his brother. Where is your brother Abel, God says. Verse 9, he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Notice he's hedging. He's subtle here. He's trying to draw the attention away. Am I my brother's keeper is basically a way of saying, leave me alone. But God loves Cain more than to leave him alone. So verse 10, the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. God switches from interrogator to prosecutor, charging Cain with a murder that he committed. The blood is crying from the ground, a common Hebrew idiom describing the groans of the innocent who suffer brutalization. Now God, as judge, speaks. Verse 11. Now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. You have polluted the land. You've polluted the ground. You will never have the same relationship with it again. It won't be fertile. When you work the ground, verse 12, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. This is the punishment. This word curse links Cain with Satan. It links Cain with the rebellion of Adam and Eve. Cain will no longer succeed as a farmer. That was his specialization. That's what he did to contribute to society. It's not going to work anymore. He'll become a fugitive without a home. Isolated, rootless, a despised outcast. Well, Cain cared nothing for Abel's life, but he's quite anxious to protect his own. So he appeals to God for mercy in verse 13. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive, a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Cain shows quite a level of self-pity here. But you'll notice that his statement has no fear of God and no offer of repentance. No confession of sin. It is the spirit of man's city. Let me live on my terms. I want to worship the way that I want to worship. I want to settle accounts the way that I want to settle those accounts. And I want you, God, to make me safe. So I can have what I want and do what I want with the assurance that you're protecting me and blessing me. This is the prayer of Satan's people. It's a mercy that God speaks. He talks to the man. Verse 15, The Lord said to him, Not so. Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. Note that. God says, I will bring vengeance. So I'm protecting you. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. I don't to or ink or something, a cut. We don't know what the mark was, but the message was sent to everybody, don't touch him. These, then, are the saddest of words. Verse 16, Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord. And he settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Nod, the Hebrew word meaning wandering. So Cain has wandered away from the presence of the Lord. What was the whole goal of creation For God to pour out His love upon the creation and for man made in His image to walk in His presence. To always be in the presence of the Lord was the point. But Cain chooses to walk away from the presence of the Lord. This is the city of man. It's religious. worships God, but on its terms. It seeks God for protection and for help. But when it comes to intimacy and relationship with God, it turns us back and walks away. I really want God to help me. I really don't want Him to know me. That's the spirit of the age, and Cain depicts it. And in this Genesis account, it is intended for us to understand that this is a theme that will continue to play out with the offspring of Satan. Cain doesn't turn to God, nor does he sit still. We see his worship, we see his murder, and now we see his city, verse 17. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. This is why we begin the series here. The naming of this city is a key theme in Scripture, and this is the genesis of it. Verse 17 indicates that building a city buys Cain safety. It buys him security and community. No more wandering. No more alienation for for Cain. In fact, he's been asking God for his protection. Now he doesn't need God. He has the walls of a city. He has the protection of a city. He'll take care of himself. And So rather than find refuge in God, he finds refuge behind the walls of his city as elementary as they may have been. He names the city, we note here, after his son, which seems to be a noble thing to do, kind of honor your son, but actually it's an arrogant thing to do. Cain is no wanderer here. This is his city named after his son, not named in memory of Abel, certainly, or in honor of the Lord. We notice that Cain's city prospers. I mean, if we don't get this, we're missing everything. This is a city built with a fist shaken in the face of God. It's in defiance. It's in arrogance. It is saying, I will take care of myself and I will build up the glory of my name. And yet it prospers. Verse 18. To Enoch was born Irat. So he Cain has the son Enoch who... To him is born Arad, and Arad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. So Cain's offspring through several generations are taking root there in that city. The city grows, the population increases, and one Lamech is born. Here the genealogy stops and concentrates on this man. Verse 19, Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Adah, and the name of the other was Zillah. Lamech is singled out here as the father of the developing culture of Cain City. And what we are to understand with the two wives is that he breaks from the Creator's design of one man and one woman in a monogamous relationship for life. God created Adam and brought to his side Eve. And the two of them bore children and had the blessing of God. But here he takes two wives, it's a sign of power. It's a sign of perhaps wealth. It's a sign certainly of being willing to turn from God's plan and pursue my own. So Cain's city harbors deep moral rebellion against the Creator. It's growing up away from the presence of the Lord. It is multiplying and now we have this brazen decision against the counsel of God to take two wives. But we see that the city continues to prosper. Verse 20, out aboard Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. You don't need a lot of imagination to see that, what's happening here. A broader word, livestock, than was used with Abel and his sheep. This word was used to describe sheep, goats, camels, donkeys, cattle, horses. And you notice here in verse 20 that they dwell in tents. What's that? They're outside the city. So we have here a rural population with a particular focus on raising up food and transportation. Verse 21, his brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all who play the lyre and the pipe. a reference to stringed and wind instruments, we assume, The music of that day, as the music of our own, brought joy to celebrants and brought comfort to mourners. All music at the time, of course, was live music, so an entertainment and service industry is born for those with the interest and the wealth to afford some of the benefits of refined society. To hire musicians who spend their days in practice becomes an industry of Cane City. Some workers dedicated to caring for cattle outside the city allowed others inside the city to use these instruments for the benefit of people. Zilla also bore tubal cane. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and of iron. We have here metallurgy, learning to use metals for the benefit of agriculture and architecture and mechanics uh, as tools. Products are being created with metals. The early emergence of science and industry in this city. And then there's this little tack on, which really should get our attention. The sister of Tubul Cain was Nama. It gets our attention because, generally, in these patriarchal genealogies, women are not mentioned. And so, when they appear, there's usually a very specific point to their appearance. And if we read Hebrew, if, we, if it sounded right in our ears as it did to the original recipients, Nama means beautiful. It could be translated gorgeous or delightful. And it's, she's probably the mother of fashion and feminine beauty. What we have here is a thriving culture that develops because God protects it, yet it develops in separation from God's presence and fellowship. It doesn't want God there, and it doesn't appeal to God for help, and yet God in His providential care allows it to prosper. People specializing, dividing up the labor, some of the finer things of life, some of the more difficult tasks that allow the society to thrive. It's so much like our world, isn't it? Thriving human culture is good. We wouldn't want it another way. We should thank God for it. We have no idea, really, even with books and the knowledge intellectually, we have no idea where we stand in history. The conveniences that we have appreciated and used this morning just to come here together, just mind-numbing to previous generations. Going back far enough, there would be no capacity to understand these conveniences. But there is a world that is bringing them about. The reducing of the effects of the curse is everywhere in prosperity. Prosperity. Reducing the labor of what it means to raise food, reducing the labor of what it means to travel. And I say that with, with, with great awareness at the moment, having just suffered over 30 hours of flight delays. I mean, you, you, just, you just get angry. You know, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. Over 30 hours of delay in one trip to China? What is that? 30 hours of walking. How far does that get you? We live in a world that is amazingly successful at breaking down the work. Medicine. Very likely, you go back a hundred years and there's a good huge swath of this auditorium that's not alive. And you go back very far and there's probably a handful of us that are alive. What medicine has accomplished? What what contemporary efforts have done? The industries that are around us. We could go on and on. And is it good or bad? Is this city of man good or bad in all of these developments? It's good. We should profit from these conveniences. We should be thankful for the fact that we have health because of what people have discovered about medicine and procedures, uh, the procedures of doctors. But what we must also grasp is that the city of man was founded by a rebel against God, a rebel who killed his brother because he was righteous. And for this godless city, Lamech speaks with all of its wonders, with all that it has accomplished. Notice what Lamech says to his wives, verse 23. Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. Here are the mothers of industry. The mothers of developing culture, hear what I have to say, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me. I am Cain's son. Boast in this. I've killed a man for wounding me. A young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Dalich's classic... Statement is that this is a poem of titanic arrogance. It is a poem of aggression and cruelty. There is no repentance here. There is no forgiveness here. Cain attempted to hide his murder, verse 9. Lamech glories in it. Apparently, it's a bit confusing, the language, but apparently a young man hit Lamech. And Lamech avenged the offense himself by killing him. You bug me, you die. As Stalin put it, I don't see the problem. No man, no problem. Take him out. That's Lamech, raging as this powerful man. He even compares himself with God. God avenges seven times any man who will kill Cain. Lamech will avenge himself 77 times against the man who merely strikes him. The point is that Lamech does not need God's protection. What he's saying is, I settle my own accounts. I do not need God, and I will not wait on him. And we have the face of terrorism staring at us right here in the city of man the face of the murderer, the face of the powerful individual who brings down wrath upon those who don't obey his wishes. Lamech speaks for the city of man as a self-centered, self-reliant, arrogant community. But this isn't the end of the story. Verse 25, there's great hope here. Remember the two offsprings. Well, this is one. Now we move in verse 25 to the second offspring. Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. Remembering they lived a very long time. So Cain kills Abel. Abel is dead as a man old enough to be doing work and worshiping God. And then Seth is born. We don't know the timing of it all. It certainly doesn't come after the development of Cain's city. At least we wouldn't assume that. But Seth is born and replaces Abel. That is so significant. We can't miss that in the text. God has appointed for me another offspring. It's not a wasted word. It's another offspring in place of Abel, the one who had worshipped Christ faithfully. But Cain killed him in persecution. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. Seth becomes the father of a line of people a key representative of which will live in opposition to Cain City. And as a case in point, in fact, this offspring lives in opposition to Cain City. Verse 26, At that time people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Have you ever read this, maybe in your Bible reading, and just said, what on earth is that about? I mean, that just seems to fly in here from nowhere. People began to call on the name of the Lord. Don't read this to say people began to pray. I don't think it's very possible that Cain and Abel and Adam and Eve are offering sacrifices and don't pray yet. I think the idea here is that people began to call together upon the name of the Lord. They began to gather as the people of God. As Cain's city is rising and is beginning to be populated, as it is becoming more and more skilled, they are gathering around the industry They're gathering around the food, the entertainment, the fashion. It's all there in this chapter. But Seth's people gather in the Lord. They gather to pray. As a community, they do not name a city after themselves, and for their own glory they call upon the name of the Lord. In this way, they evidence that they are seeking a heavenly city. They are citizens of an eternal city not made with hands. We go back to the creation account, and we ask the question here, why the sun, the moon, and the stars? It indicates in the text that God has created light. There's a lot there that's confusing to us. We don't understand from comparison to our world. But light is there. Why does God create the sun, the moon, and the stars? The way that he puts it is the moon particularly is set in the sky so that you can mark seasons of Sabbath and worship. The creation itself is oriented toward bringing God's people to celebrate him and to worship him. Even the moon hangs in the sky that we'll know when. The goal of creation is to look up Cain looks down. But Seth's people look up in worship. As Cain's people look down, they sulk in God's presence. They wonder if he exists. They despise his law and his correction. And if they worship, they do it on their own terms. Seth's line seeks the Lord on God's terms. Cain's people shape culture and discern the secrets of creation, but while they play skillfully on their instruments, they offer no song of praise to the Lord and no prayers of true dependence upon Him. Oh, the themes that explode from this chapter. It's so vital to us to see these two peoples, these two offsprings, and the way that they develop. What is introduced here to us are themes that we must grasp as we understand the Bible the one being the theme of false religion. We must approach God on His terms, not our own. The city of man is very religious, but at the same time the world pursues religion in such a way that always slides off toward the rejection of God even in its worship. Dressed in robes and occupying massive church buildings or concocting one's own privatized worship, in a pair of shorts in front of a TV, others tra- chasing religious trends, whoever it is, religion can take you farther from God than non-religion. That's a danger of being seated in these chairs today. Religion can take you farther from God than non-religion. It can convince you you're on the right trail. Religion in the city of man preaches acceptance with God without sacrifice for sin. It preaches the goodness of man and denies the severity and the judgment of God. It preaches rules and regulations which we can keep in the flesh without any concept of how God must be approached in relationship through the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. It is religious in form, but it denies the power of God. And that might be your religion. In fact, you may be a member of this church and that's your religion. You're going through the routine. You're going through the ritual. You're enjoying relationships with people on some level. But you're really defining your own religion. There's great danger in that. We must come to the cross. We must come to the one who fulfills Genesis 3:15. We must come to the one who says sin is serious. Breaking the law of God is not something that will elicit from God just a, a do-over. A never mind, it's not that big of a deal. Breaking the law of God is serious. And Jesus Christ lays down his life To pay the penalty and the cost of your sin. He rises from the dead, and only in Him is life found, not in your religious activities, not in your family connection, not in the good people you know, even within the context of this church. Don't let religion be the cannonball that sinks you in the ocean. We must trust the Messiah. Christ. This passage teaches us secondly about opposition. There's false religion and that really goes at odds with true religion. Opposition. God's people must anticipate hostility for man's kingdom. As I report on uh, the journey to China, Lord willing, tonight I will tell the story of a church that I gathered with that was illegal. You can't do this. At least on the books. This isn't legal. I'll tell the story of a church which government officials attacked, destroying their private property, scattering the believers who have never since been able to meet again. Walk in one day as we are seated here, start tearing the building down, and say, you guys never meet again as a church. Hindu extremists recently did the same thing to a church in India They beat the pastor and other believers with rods. They drug the pastor and his wife to a nearby Hindu temple, forcing them, seeking to force them to worship a Hindu god. The authorities, rather than protecting this pastor and his wife, just recently put him in jail for weeks. When he was released, the extremists were waiting for him and they said, Leave our village or you die. This is our world. This is now, today. And what we've got to realize is that is normal. That's normal. We live amidst the city of Cain, the arrogant city of Lamech, which resists God and His truth, and thus normally lashes out at those who preach the gospel. Naturally. Jesus told us this. It's not like Jesus ever be accused of false advertisement. He said, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. They do this on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. They don't know me. Like Cain, they turn their back on me and they build their city in their own independence, in their own arrogance. They don't like what I am saying. They're not going to like what you're saying. You can count on it. This is normal. Somebody brought up a point here that I thought was really valid. This also calls us in some sense, I don't think it was on Genesis 4 or something else I was reading, but it calls us in some sense to realize we cannot limit our Christian faith to pockets of freedom that our culture is willing to extend to us. I Man, That's a beauty about going to China in the underground church today. They know they don't exist, in one sense, in the government's mind. They know they're in a position of illegality. That has a certain benefit. What we can do in this society is show our Christianity just where the society provides the pocket of opportunity and never stretch it anywhere else. We need to be willing to live as Christ's followers in places where man's kingdom provides no space for us, no reception, and no sanctuary. Because if you haven't seen this, that pocket of freedom is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And as churches continue to say, I will never cross the lines except what the culture provides as a place of freedom, a place of sanctuary." such as this right here. Nobody cares that we're here. Nobody. The haters of Jesus have no problem with us sitting right here in this place in our culture and worshiping Christ. This is sanctuary. This is space. But we get outside of this building, we get off these grounds, and the space begins to shrink. We've got to think about this. Or pretty soon we're going to have nowhere to stand, and we're not going to have any capacity to resist what the world has laid out as our rules. We must hold our lives dear, not hold our lives dear to ourselves, but be willing to lay them down for the cause of the gospel. And on this point, let's rejoice. The head of Satan has been crushed. The victory has been won. Christ will come. And all this will be settled. But we, as we wait, must be willing to suffer. Thirdly, living worship. Alongside the people of man's kingdom, we too exercise dominion over creation. And we mine out its mysteries. But we must also do so as worshippers. Our calling is to see in creation the design and the purposes of God and to worship Him for it. Our calling as the people of God is to serve as a kingdom of priests, singing His praises, seeking His face in prayer, not as an afterthought, but as the glory of all creation. We too will invent We too will research. We too will build and purify. We also will heal and repair and communicate and care. We too will marshal sound and electricity and fossil fuels in the human body. Right in the midst of Cain's city. But as the people of God, as citizens of the eternal city, we do all of this for the glory of God and the proclamation of His name in this world. We're different people. We serve a different kingdom, we have a different Lord, and so we work in a different way. And as we decode creation's mysteries and subdue the earth, we never lift up an arrogant song of defiance like Lamech, but rather we gather to sing with awestruck wonder of the glories of our God and King and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. All of this must feed our self-concept. I am a child of God through Christ. I am a citizen of the heavenly city. I am on a mission to subdue the earth for the glory of the King. And I pour out my abilities and my capacities to continue to humble this world, to bring it under dominion, and to serve the cause of people. But I do all of this as a proclaimer of Christ in true worship. Jesus crucified and risen is my theme and heaven to come is my home and everything I touch and everything that I handle and all that I do is filtered through that self-identity in this through trust in the gospel and in this orientation We serve out our lives as the people of God with the city in focus that is to come, not the one that now rages against the king. Lord, we plead for help to this end. We need you. There's a lot of things we have to decide and think through and work out in our own identity, how easy it is for us to identify as Americans, as Minnesotans, as those who live in the South Metro and other places that gather here. But Lord, may we recognize that above all, we are brothers and sisters in Christ and that heaven is our home. I pray for those that know not Christ and are seeking out this world's purposes that are part of the city of Cain and Lamech, I pray that you deliver them, that we would be able to be a help to them, an encouragement to them, and that Christ crucified and risen would be our song. Blessed to this end we pray in Christ's name. Amen.